0: Welcome to the New Books Network
1: Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Phil Rosenzweig, author of the book Reginald Rose and The Journey of Twelve Angry Men, published in two thousand twenty one by Fordham Press, a business scholar. Phil describes the career of one of the giants in early television and how he wrote a teleplay and later a screenplay that is still studied in both legal and business executive circle for its depiction of the jury system and interpersonal relationships. We also discuss Phil's biographical study of Rose and how he compared to such writing giants as Paddy Chayefsky and Rod Serling. Welcome, Phil Rosenzweig. Hi, Phil. How are you? Doing fine,
0: thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: So we are talking about your new book, which is scheduled to come out in October, but we're doing this recording a little early, but that's okay. Um, The title of the book is Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men. It's published by Empire State Editions, which is an imprint of Fordham University Press. So uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about it. Uh, As we get started, though, I want to talk a little bit about your background because you are not a film, TV, media writer uh, at the profession. You're actually a professor professor in business. So uh, let's briefly talk about that background and how you decided that a book on film or, or television, too, and an individual like this was so
0: important to you. Well, I first came across the movie 12 Angry Men when I was a business school student at UCLA back in the late 1970s. I had a professor who brought it into class and showed it one day, and it turns out to be just a a wonderful example of interpersonal behavior, group dynamics. We had a, a terrific lesson about it, and I never forgot that when I went on to become a business school professor I was at different schools and I found out that my teacher at UCLA was hardly the only person who used this in class. In fact, it's very widely used. And I began to use it myself as a way for students to understand a lot about social psychology and group dynamics. Uh, And then I found out, of course, that uh, the legal profession thinks that it's their movie. And you've got umpteen lawyers who love this movie because it talks about things that are close to their heart, reasonable doubt, presumption of innocence, and what jury trials are all about. And I began to realize this is a drama that has an extraordinarily wide following. Some people like it just because it's a great movie, but it's also a great stage play and it's endeared itself to people in two very different fields. So I became intrigued about the drama and began to look into it for that reason.
1: The good thing is it's actually available in three. media because we can still find the TV version. Um, The Blu-ray DVD that Criteria put out actually has the TV version. It's also available. I've seen it on YouTube. So the good thing is we have a chance to see it in those formats
0: too. Correct. That's right. It, It was first made for live broadcast on television in 1954 and only later became a movie. For a long time, we didn't actually have the full Television production. Um, one reel had been lost, but later that was found, and so as you say uh, on Criterion and elsewhere, you can see the, the entire television drama as well as what's better known to most people, which is the movie version. Right,
1: and obviously we're going to talk a lot about how things developed. Um, but let's talk first about Reginald Rose because he is obviously the main character of your book and. The book is more than just a discussion of 12 Angry Men. It's also a biography. Um, so for people who might not know his name, because uh, he's, he's not as well known as some of the other folks we, we're going to talk about, uh, who was Reginald Rose and how did he get into television?
0: So Reginald Rose was, by most people's accounts, one of the great television writers during the 1950s. Uh, known for his original dramatic works, mostly on CBS, during the days of the live anthologies uh, he wrote for Westinghouse Studio One. And Twelve Angry Men was one of the many dramas that he wrote during that time. He went on to do many other things. He did a number of movies. Um, He wrote some for the stage. But He wasn't somebody who drew a lot of attention to himself. He wasn't um, as well known as some of his peers uh, who would be people like Patty Chayefsky and Rod Serling. These were people with big personalities and drew a lot of attention to themselves. Rose was not that way. He was a little more self-effacing. He didn't enjoy publicity for the sake of publicity. So he has not been as well known as some of his peers. And in fact, when he died in 2002, Uh, His obituary just described him as the author of 12 Angry Men. So this was probably his, uh, clearly his, his best known work that grew to become more famous than the man himself. And so as I got into the story of 12 Angry Men, I wanted to know who this man was, what motivated him, what his career was like. And I ended up writing what is, on one hand, the biography of the man, the writer, but with a special focus on this one work that went on to become more famous than the man himself.
1: Right, you mentioned Chayefsky and Serling, who are well-known for their early work in TV, but as previously, Chayefsky went on to movies and the stage. Serling did some movie work, but The Twilight Zone is what he's most well-known for. And both of those men share one of the things that I saw about Reginald Rose is their desire to talk about social events and controversial topics. Um, Mm -hmm. Is that an accurate way of describing
0: them? I think that applies certainly to Rose, somewhat less to Sterling, and much less to Chayefsky. Uh, Chayefsky began writing about the lives of ordinary people, what he called the uh, the, the world of the ordinary. Uh, in the early days of television, what television was especially good at was bringing you close up to the lives of ordinary people and bringing them into the living room. And so the first dramas that Chayefsky wrote were very much like that. And of course, he was best known for Marty, uh, but he did many that were about ordinary people, only later in his life, and you mentioned he went back into screenwriting in the 1970s with movies like Network, did he then begin to address some broader societal themes, but early on, not so much. Serling was an extraordinary man who was very prolific and wrote about all kinds of things, Uh, everything from corruption to combat to, of course, fantasy that he developed into the twilight zone. So he did some things of a social nature. uh, But Rose was the one who was most interested in writing about things like uh, free speech, discrimination. Uh, He addressed racial issues before anybody else was writing about them on television. So I think Rose probably more than anybody else was concerned about issues of social justice and was interested in pushing that early on.
1: One of the things he did in The Twilight Zone was to masquerade many of his uh, social topics as fantasy, as you point out. He was a little less obvious than Rose was, but you're right. Uh, Rose, virtually everything you discussed, especially early on,
0: has a social conscience to it. Yeah, very much. And in fact, one reason why Sterling did what you say with uh, disguising some of his uh, social themes in the Twilight Zone is because he had had such difficult times with censorship or what he felt was the constraints of censorship. Rose dealt with that too, but Rose was a little more conciliatory and a little more willing to work within the constraints that he had and still find a way to very effectively make his point rather than getting angry and upset, which was a little more what, uh, what Serling did. So Rose was Quietly effective rather than confrontational.
1: What was let's talk a little bit our early days of television when uh Studio One and many of these other shows were on. We tend to call them the golden age of television, and it's mostly because of things like Studio One and some of those other shows. But we know that TV was also full of a lot of other things early on, but these shows tended to be the most well known.
0: From that period that we still talk about, mm-hmm. right? So when you know, I, so I was born in the mid fifties. When I when I came of age, TV was I already was 56, a big deal. So nineteen fifty six. So we're close. Yes, we're we're almost the same age. So I what, what what I think you and I and and people who came after us have to make an effort to remember is that after World War II, when commercial television began. Uh television sets were small, they were primitive, and there was almost nothing to watch. And television then began to grow very, very rapidly in 1947, 48, 49. Every year, the number of sets was growing by about a factor of five. And NBC and then CBS decided to, to ramp up what they were offering. But the quality was not very good. If you were a serious writer, you wanted to write for Broadway or maybe the movies. If you were an actor, same thing and television was looked down upon. What that did is it just opened the door for young writers, young actors, young directors who suddenly found that they could have this terrific platform on television that was growing very rapidly. And so there was this enormous outpouring of creativity among writers, directors, and actors. And Rose's timing and Serling and Chayefsky, their timing was was very fortunate because they were in the right place at the right time when suddenly there was a lot of demand for young talent. Uh, And on NBC, the leading anthology was Philco, which then shared with Goodyear, so Philco Goodyear. Uh, Fred Coe was the producer and Chayefsky was one of the writers there along with people like Horton Foote. CBS was maybe a step behind, but Studio One was theirs and um, Rose wrote for them as uh, as did Serling and a few others.
1: And of course, it was then eventually sponsored by Westinghouse.
0: Yes. After one year, Westinghouse took over the sponsorship, uh, which had its good points and its bad points. And so one of the things that goes on here is that early on, you can do almost anything as sponsors come in, they're putting in money, which is good in some ways, but it also means they have expectations. They want eyeballs. They want viewers. And so there was over time a bit of a winnowing of what you were allowed to do, um, Also, by the mid 50s, there was a push to move to film as opposed to live performance, because live performances, once they were once they were broadcast, they were gone. Uh, You couldn't tape them and show them again. And so if something was good, you didn't have an easy way to rebroadcast. And uh, also the movies wised up. They realized that they had been denigrating television. But by the early 50s, there were a lot of. There was a decline at the box office because people were staying home watching television instead of going to the movies. So the movies then responded by playing to their strength. And their strength was color, widescreen, a big experience that television couldn't produce. So there was this very interesting competitive back and forth between the movies and television in those days. One of the things
1: I read about the existing recording or video of film of 12 angry men from the TV version is what they did was they literally just took a film camera and and took a picture of the screen of a TV screen and recorded it that way. But there were technical issues they had to work through because the film
0: didn't show it the same way because of the differences in transmission. Right. Yeah. Those are called kinescopes and that's all they had until they could do recording. Um, But eventually the days of live anthologies uh, died out. The last ones were in the, well, there were many in the early fifties, but already by the mid fifties, the pendulum had swung the other way. Studios in Los Angeles, rather than making fun of television, began to court television. And so more and more TV shows were locating there and doing things for, uh, that were filmed and then could be broadcast that way. Uh, But, um, But Rose uh, began to write for television in the early 50s and uh, did a few other things before he began to write original dramas for Studio One. But he was, I think, quite fortunate that he came on the scene when there was this demand for new talent with new ideas, and he took advantage of that.
1: Yeah, as a matter of fact, he didn't really have the writing background of some of the other people that were being used during this period, some of the folks you mentioned from both NBC and CBS, he was, mm-hmm. it was a little different for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So obviously 12 Angry Men ends up becoming an important drama for him on the show, on, on Studio One. But it wasn't his first film That from a TV drama that he actually had other programs that became movies first. Let's talk a little bit about them. What was the first uh, of his dramas that he wrote for television that became a feature film?
0: So um, 12 Angry Men was the fourth that he did on Studio One. And the, early the next year, he did a thing called Crime in the Streets. Studio One actually passed on that one. They didn't like the, the theme, which was about a, a group of juvenile delinquents who want to you know, commit a crime. So they said no, but Rose's agent shopped it elsewhere and it wound up on the Elgin Hour. And Sidney Lamette happened to direct it on the Elgin Hour. And so in early 1956, uh, sorry, early 1955, you have 12 Angry Men who was shown the previous September and it won an Emmy. It, in fact, it won three Emmys. It won for, for, um, Best Director, Franklin Shafter, Best Actor, Robert Cummings, who was in the lead role as Juror Eight, and for Reginald Rose. So he won. they won three Emmys, but Crime in the Streets that came out in February of 1955 was deemed by the movie studios to be a better commercial prospect um, for whatever reason. They, it had a bigger cast. You could add a romantic angle. Uh, There was something about it that seemed more interesting than 12 Angry Men, which for heaven's sakes, it's it's 12 men standing around in one room having an argument. Well, what kind of a movie is that? So it was not the first. Um, Allied Artists, one of the second tier movie studios, chose and bought the rights for Crime in the Streets, which was then made into a movie the next year. Rose uh, was happy to have the sale, but as often happens to writers, once you've sold the rights to it, uh, it's out of your control. And they ended up doing things with it that he was not that happy with. He wanted Sidney Lumet to direct the movie. They went with Don Siegel, who had just done Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So it was not a great experience. But when there was an opportunity a year later, or, or sorry, a few months later, to make a movie of 12 Angry Men, then uh, he was very pleased and pushed hard to get Lamette to direct that one
1: that was that, that's another point that we want to talk about early on is sidney lumet because he obviously became a well-known director over time but 12 angry men was his first film and it actually in many ways created his method of filmmaking almost every film he made after that he used some of the same concepts such as trying to stay you know stay on budget plan out as far as you can and rehearsing
0: well the the planning the shots in advance came from his background in television because in live television you have to plan the shots in advance and you cannot light each shot uh, but you have to be very adept at planning the shots in advance so he did take that Uh, Lamette had been in television he knew rose from television but any director the natural step is to move into feature films the problem is getting your first one I saw an interview with Lamette where the, the interviewer said, you know, you, you've you done so many films on themes of justice, you know, Serpico and others. Uh, was that what drew you to 12 Angry Men? And he just laughed. He said, no. He said, your first movie, you say yes. Uh, it didn't matter what it was going to be. If somebody wants you to direct a feature film, you direct a feature film. But Lumet did a brilliant job with it. And brought on board as director of photography, Boris Kaufman, uh, who had done On the Waterfront and was very good at this kind of gritty black and white feel. And the two of them had a real vision for 12 Angry Men that I think um, is one of the most impressive factors of it.
1: I know I watched it two days ago, just in prep for this. It's been a while since I'd seen it. And one of the things that I was over, it was just unbelievable how, in many ways, modern his filmmaking is. For example, and you pointed out in the book that as the, as the movie gets, gets farther and farther along, he tends to cut quickly. So you have a lot of quick cutting, which back then we're always led to believe wasn't the way you, most films were made, that they tended to base on longer shots. But he quickly figured out that in order to heighten the tension, he had to do that.
0: So not only is the uh, speed of cutting accelerating, but the lenses shift to compress to make things feel tighter and more claustrophobic, and even the angle of the lens, the angle of the camera. At the beginning, it's higher, looking down, more space, and towards the end of the movie, it's low, looking up. You almost feel the ceiling is is coming down on you. Um, I mean, I've seen the movie many times because I, I teach it, and uh, every time I I teach it, I see something new, but clearly the, the artistic vision between Lamette and Kaufman was extraordinary. And they went on to work many, many more times together. Uh, they, they did the Pawnbroker, they did the Eugene O'Neill play, Long Day's Journey into Night. They did a few less well-known films together in the 60s, but um, that was a, a great partnership.
1: It's funny, when reading your book, the one thing I didn't know, and it became a name that I recognized well, is that Lumet's assistant when he was working in television was John Frankenheimer, who, of course, would go off onto his own career, which in many ways was similar to
0: Lumet's. Yes, Frankenheimer assisted him on Danger and on You Are There. And when Lumet moved from each of those CBS programs, Frankenheimer took those over. And he was only about 24 at the time. He was was very young.
1: It's great that we actually have many photos and
0: images from
1: the making of the film, so you can actually see him in, in, in action, so to speak. But before we go too far into the film, let's back up a little bit. So obviously, um, Reginald Rose is able to sell the film to, to the movies, but he didn't do it by himself, obviously. He needed a, someone who really had the clout to get it made, and who was that?
0: So, uh, well, of course, Henry Fonda comes along and Henry Fonda, one of America's great actors, he had been under contract for 20th Century Fox through the late 40s and at that point was really sick of the movies and spent the next several years on Broadway. He was in Mr. Roberts. Uh, He did the first play version of the Kane Mutiny um, and went back into movies for Mr. Roberts. Uh, for the movie version of it although he thought he was too old at the time they brought him out of retirement for that but um fonda like many actors in the mid 50s was also interested in going into movie production it's not well known because actually after his first foray 12 angry men he 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 discontinued that but many actors uh, especially after the studios were broken up after the paramount rulings in 1958 Uh, Many actors were finding ways to produce independently. Probably the lead person doing that was Burt Lancaster, who worked with his agent and producing partner, Harold Hecht, on a series of movies and then ended up financing them through United Artists. United Artists, formerly one of the great studios, fell into financial problems. And in the early 50s, uh, Douglas Fairbanks, I think, was, was dead at that point. But Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin still were. Owners, but they were losing money and really didn't know what to do with it. And Arthur Krim and, um, and uh, um, Benjamin came along and made a deal to take over. And they, they created what was, if you will, the first virtual movie studio. Uh, They didn't own the lots, they didn't own the sets, they didn't have actors under contract, but you could come to them and say you wanted to make a movie, and they would put up the financing and also put up the distribution in exchange for a pretty good chunk of the revenues that would come your way. So in early 1955, Henry Fonda uh, made a deal with United Artists. He set up his own production company called Orion, and it was a six-picture deal. And then the question is, okay, well, what properties are you going to make into movies? And he was in a television show called The Clown about Emmett Kelly, famous clown of the time, maybe that was one. And then he was in Los Angeles in May of 1955 to do a television production of The Petrified Forest with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And while he was in Los Angeles, United Artists said Come on by. We want to talk to you about various projects. And they showed him a kinescope of 12 Angry Men. They had seen it. Uh, And this is something, Joel, that is one of the things I found in my book that's different from Common Wisdom. Common Wisdom says Fonda saw the show and wanted to make the movie, but couldn't get a studio interested. So he went to United Artists. It's exactly the opposite. Uh, we know it's clear that Fonda didn't see the, movie, the TV show when it was first broadcast because he was in the middle of the Pacific Ocean at the time. He was filming uh, Mr. Roberts in September of 1954, and he might have heard of the show. He might have seen that it was well received, but he didn't actually see it until United Artists showed him the kinescope. And when he saw it, he loved it. And he said, ah, the juror 8 is a character that I can play. Fonda actually had portrayed many characters with concerns about justice from young Abe Lincoln to Tom Joad in the Grapes of Wrath to the character he plays in the Oxbow incident. And so Fonda then decided that he would like to make this as a movie and he approached Rose, will you co-produce with me and we will then get funding, financing and distribution from United Artists. And that's how it came about.
1: So obviously, Rose was very, must have been very happy with the way things were going. Although I noticed that the original production budget basically meant that Rose and Fonda and other, and some couple other people weren't getting
0: paid very much early on or at all. Well, yes. um, It's sometimes said that Fonda put up his own money. No, he didn't put up his own money, but he did agree to defer his entire fee. Rose, a little bit different. Um, He was to earn $60,000, which for a young man earning $20,000 a year uh, in television, that was really good. However, 45 of the 60 was deferred. So Rose was paid $15,000, which was very good. And it's what other screenwriters were getting for rights to their property and for the screenplay. But the 45 then was held back. And you would only get that, and Fonda would only get his 175, because of course he was a big star, if the film made money. And my gosh, uh, the number of times that UA took a bite out of the apple before you got the core, they took 30% off the top, that was their flat fee, then they recovered all of their out-of-pocket marketing expenses, then they recovered all of the production costs. And if there was anything left after that, that was called profit. And it was shared a few ways, uh, first paying the deferred fees, and then if there was anything more. So Fonda did risk a lot. It's He could have earned nothing. As it turned out, it was about three years before the movie broke even. Uh, it was not a commercial success when it first came out. And yeah,
1: we were going to talk about that, but... One of the things that I found interesting in your discussion was how Rose, knowing that this was going to film now, went back to the original and said, "Okay, how do I change this? First off to lengthen it, because obviously the TV version is only like 50 minutes long and the film was just over an hour and a half, but also think about the ideas of how to make it more movie, you know, make it visual in a bigger way.
0: Yeah. So one of the things I I do in my book, because my research took me to the Reginald Rose papers at the University of Wisconsin, and you can find there the original outline, the first television script that was too long, the shorter one that they actually performed, and then the first, the second, and the final shooting script of the movie screenplay. And what's really fascinating, and I, I try to document this, is what was added, what was changed, how some characters were changed, uh, what, what was added and, and deleted and so forth. But one of the things they did not do, Joel, to say to make it more movie like, uh, Rose and Fonda had a choice. We could have flashbacks. We could show flashback to the crime, flashback to moments in the trial, flashback to the relationship of the boy with his father. We could flashback to all kinds of things. Why not? We have the ability to do that in a movie. But both of them independently thought, you know, the power of this drama comes from how it moves in real time without dissolves or flashbacks or breaks. Let's not do that. So let's add some things to to fill it out. But let's not have those kind of movie ish flashbacks and other techniques. And they stayed very disciplined on that. And they both agreed on that. So they They were never tempted to change much. The only things that they did that make it at all different from the play you might see when it's performed is there are two shots at the very beginning. You see the exterior of the courthouse, and then you're taken into the court building. And two shots at the very end, when two of the jurors come out and chat, that's Henry Fonda, juror eight, and Joseph Sweeney, who plays uh, juror nine, and then a final shot, wide vista of the jurors walking down the courthouse steps. Those were added, but otherwise, and and they were added, but they do not violate the notion of unity of time. They are completely in sequence. There's no flashbacks.
1: One of the things I noticed from watching it, you discuss it in the book too, although I hadn't gotten to that point before I'd read, watched the film again, was the whole way the film goes from the outside in and then reverses. So, for example, as you point out, you start showing the building, then you're in the lobby, then you're outside the courtroom, you're in the courtroom, and then you're in the jury room. And from that point on, except for one or two bathroom scenes where you sort of get away from the main jury room, it's everything's in there.
0: And then, of course, the reverse happens. That's right. Um, And I think one reason why they have that very first shot looking up at this enormous courthouse with its huge, massive columns is they're conveying something about the power of the institution and the power of the judicial system. And the inscription at the top is a quote from George Washington about the administration of justice. But the movie says, I think what it's saying is you can have the biggest, strongest columns you want and the nicest law books that you want, but the administration of justice comes down to human beings. And so the movie is not about the big columns and the big temple of justice. It's about these individual fallible people working together to try to bring about a just uh, conclusion.
1: And, of course, he added the scene in the actual courtroom where the judge drones on his instructions and you actually see the defendant full on face wise at one point where in the TV version, you do hear some of the judge, but most everything else is uh, you never know enough about the uh, defendant to make any obvious conclusions.
0: Yeah, uh, so I think Lamette added that. It's not clear, uh, but he added two quick shots of the defendant, which allows us to infer something about his ethnicity. The screenplay and the script that Rose wrote has nothing about his ethnicity. You know that the jurors are are white men and they're talking about those people. So there's something about a different ethnic group, but we really don't know who it is. When Rose first wrote the outline, he gave names to the uh, defendant and the defendant's father. They were Jack Davis and Harry Davis. The the jurors didn't have names because he figured there's no way I can give all these people names. But A little bit later, before they did the television show, even those names dropped out. And I think it's significant also because there's nothing that suggests ethnicity. Now, when people see the movie, they look at the young man and they think, well, he's probably Hispanic. Okay, 1957, New York. Mm, This is the time of the Jets and the Sharks and, and West Side Story. Maybe he's Puerto Rican. Well, maybe he is. But it's never said. And it doesn't have to be. It could be, you know, uh, make up your own. And and curiously, and I also mentioned this in the book. It's a lesson that Rose learned from his previous uh, studio one drama called Thunder on Sycamore Street, which was which he wanted to have about racial discrimination. He wanted it to be about a black family that was hounded out of its neighborhood by by whites, but um, CBS wouldn't let him do that, and so unable to talk about uh, racial groups in explicit terms, he he turned the the fellow whose family was kicked out into an ex-convict. But everybody who watched that knew this was not about ex-convicts. And the lesson that, that Rose took from that is actually, if you don't mention the ethnic group, it's more broadly applicable rather than less applicable. So whereas Serling bristled at what the constraints put on him, Rose found a way to say what he wanted to say within the constraints imposed on him, and in fact, find a way to uh, make an even more powerful message. But you're right, in the movie, we do see the young man and we see him looking frightened and frail, which turns out to be quite useful, I think, for the drama that Lamette wanted to bring to the screen. It's funny that at the end, in the scene,
1: on the steps where juror eight and nine actually talk to each other again, and juror nine asks juror eight his name, he says, Davis.
0: Yes, so, uh, so Rose didn't use the word, didn't use the name Davis for the defendant, but he recycled it later, um, so there you go.
1: So the film was made in six weeks, is the six weeks of work is what you say, but what happened over the first two weeks of that?
0: So the first two weeks were given over to rehearsals. They rented um, the Steinway Hall uh, in Midtown. And this was something that was actually quite unusual for most motion pictures. And it was one of the things that Fonda had found very frustrating about mov- being a movie actor was that you don't get a lot of chance to rehearse, but Fonda wanted to do it. And by golly, he was the producer. Rose was happy to, and LeMet liked rehearsal. Uh, he was, of course, a... Uh, A former actor, a teacher of acting, and had directed live broadcasts, which you had to do rehearsals in advance. So the 12 men came together and had two weeks of rehearsal. And after one week, a few of them said, Gosh, we would have been ready to take this on the stage right now. But they kept doing it over and over. So they knew the roles very well, which was also important when they did the filming, Joel, because partly for financial reasons, they filmed it out of sequence. They filmed this shot on this day and this shot on that day. And, and so what you end up seeing in the final version is edited together shots that might have been on rather different days, but in order to meet the budget constraint, they didn't film it in sequence. And so rehearsals proved to be very important for actors to always know what they were thinking and feeling on, for the lines of that particular scene. You
1: mentioned that um,
0: Lumet had built a room that had four
1: sides and he would film against one side, then against the next. And it, and it literally it's unbelievable, not only for him as a director, also the lighting and, and the cinematography work, but also the actors that they had. This
0: was true mem- movie making and as yes, opposed and- to play. Yes, and and these were uh, these were professional actors. Um, they, were, I mean, of course, you might say, well, all actors are professional actors, but these these are people trained on Broadway, trained in the play. They were a magnificent ensemble. Uh, the, the two of them had been in the TV version, Joseph Sweeney and George Voskovic, who played jurors nine and eleven, and juror ten, uh, Edward Arnold was in the TV version and should have been in the movie, but died suddenly just uh, a few weeks before rehearsals. And Ed Begley, who we all know is this wonderful juror number 10, wonderful, I, I use that word advisedly, because he's a, a very disturbing, unpleasant bigot, but he plays it wonderfully. Uh, he was brought in very late in the game. But then you had some people uh, who had known Lamette from television the e.g marshalls the martin balsams um, jack warden and so forth it's a wonderful ensemble cast
1: i was thinking as i was watching the other day where e.g marshall's character at the end when he's finally starting to think well maybe he's wrong earlier in the film he had said he never sweats and yet at the end (laughs) you can see the sweat up on the top of his forehead and i'm saying now that's unbelievable that they were able to it's unbelievable how pre-planned everything
0: had to be. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, so, yes, there's a little drop of sweat coming down his forehead. But also, as the play goes on, the room is sweltering and the perspiration is now accumulating. And some of the men are showing rings of sweat under their arms. And they literally had to come around with a little, um, you know, a little flit gun and... <laughs> Uh, yeah, exactly. And, and add those. So uh, it's it's very finely crafted.
1: So he gets the film done in six weeks on budget. Um, and it's very quickly turned around. I mean,
0: when was it scheduled for release? So it was released in April of 1957 and uh, was released, uh, you know, at a time when Hollywood was turning out, you know, hundreds of movies a year and the box office was dominated by these big spectacles in color around the world in 80 days, the 10 commandments and funny face comes out in early 1957. And you've got, you know, Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire dancing on sets. And the whole attention of moviegoers was towards those kinds of things. Easter was coming up and there were a few big name Uh, Movies coming out at Easter, uh, Spirit of St. Louis with uh, James Stewart as Charles Lindbergh. And 12 Angry Men is one of several movies released a week before Easter. It doesn't really find an audience. It's given a national release. It probably would have been better not to have a national release and let it grow organically. But that's not what happened. And within a few weeks, um, it's kind of come and gone. And by year end. You've got two very different narratives. The critics liked it, and it was on lots of top 10 of the year. And right from the beginning, people said this is a brilliantly acted, brilliantly directed movie, but the public, by and large, missed it. And so what do you do with a movie like that? Well, at the end of the year, it's not only on some... Top ten of the years, but it did get um, three Oscar nominations, which was quite unusual to have a essentially a box office failure get nominations. But when Oscar time rolled around in early 1958, um, each of those Oscars went to Bridge on the River Kwai, the big, you know, widescreen, full color, cast of hundreds, international, filmed on location spectacle, and it just kind of got lost after that. Yeah. You mentioned that
1: the studio had hoped that if it had won Oscars, they could have re-released it and made some money off of it. But what they actually did was, you said, nothing except it went to Europe.
0: Yeah. And United Artists, you know, the, the, the interest of the producer of one movie and the interest of the studio turning out 50 movies are totally different. Uh, That one doesn't work. Okay, we move on to the next one. Oh, we had Sweet Smell of Success. We had a bunch of others. Yours didn't work out. Well, too bad. Make another one. Uh, So United Artists was not going to cry any tears over the, the relative failure of 12 Angry Men. However, as you say, it was noticed in Europe and it won first prize at the Berlin Film Festival in June 1957. The Europeans loved it they uh, were used to the kind of glitzy spectacles from Hollywood and were a little bit turned off by them. And this was a movie that they liked uh, a great deal. And so it did well in Europe and then also launched stage versions. And its second life is important. So, you know, the title of my book is Reginald Rose and the Journey of Twelve Angry Men, because it's not just the making of the movie. It's what I've been trying to describe here is how a movie that was not successful initially has gone on to be as popular as it is today. It has an extraordinarily devoted following by people in many fields. It's uh, as I've been doing this book, I've come across so many people who said, "Oh, Twelve Angry Men, one of my favorite movies. What a great movie!" It has a following that that goes way, way beyond the commercial success of the movie in the late 1950s. It's really resonates and strikes a chord with people over the uh, over the decades.
1: And as you pointed out and of course Europe probably helped this it, defun- it eventually did make its money back made enough profit that everybody got their deferred payments but that was pretty much it for it at that point.
0: Yes and by then all the principles had long since moved on. I mean as soon as they wrapped the last shot, it's like okay, what's your next gig I'm off to this I'm off to that okay see you later nobody thought hey, you know, when this comes out, people are really going to take notice. That's, that's not the life of a working actor then. Lemet got a lot of credit as director and immediately signed a, a multi-picture deal with RKO, and he was off doing his thing. Rose uh, was still writing for Studio One and then did a number of other things as well. But, you know, nobody really thought they had made anything great. Uh, but over the years it has grown in reputation and as I said at the very beginning, has a very deep following among legal professionals who love the movie, among people in the field of management. And it's also been an extremely successful stage play both by professionals and by amateurs, and is remade around the world. Uh, even in the last 10 years, there have been some extremely good remakes of the full, length movie in Russia, in China, in India, and so forth. And of course, many of the men who were in the film,
1: we see with even greater roles going forward, some of them with Lumet. Lumet it was one of those directors who liked working with the same people regularly. And it, you, you see them over and over again. Of course, somebody like a Jack Klugman, who was just getting started in 12 Angry Men, And some of the others would, the younger people would go on to great careers. And some of those who were a little older and been around actually continued quite a bit. And I think about people like Marty, uh, like Martin Balsam and uh, a couple other people who you see in other films regularly from that point on.
0: Sure. That's, That's exactly right. Yes.
1: So moving back to Reginald Rose now, let's back up again. Well, not back up, go forward with him. Obviously, he did not do much of anything in films going forward. Um, Most of what he did the rest of his career was television. And, of course, probably the second thing he's most well-known for is the TV series The Defenders, Um, which, luckily, we actually can see episodes of that now. The first season's out on DVD, so if you really want to see some of those, you can see those. But... Mm -hmm. What led to him being able to become what we would call a show, the showrunner of the Defenders? So after
0: Studio One ramped down about 1957, uh, Rose, by that point, had established his name and he did a few movies for Walter Mirisch, and he did a few more uh, dramas on television. But he was also... Uh, Reluctant to move to Los Angeles. He really didn't want to work there. He was a New Yorker and wanted to stay in New York. And Herbert Broadkin, who had been one of his producers on a number of shows, felt the same way. And Broadkin was committed to uh, having good television from New York. And the two of them decided to work together and they got funding for a pilot based on the last of the original dramas that Rose did for Studio One, which was called The Defenders. And um, that was with uh, Ralph Bellamy as the older lawyer, and his son was played by William Shatner, who was just starting out. Well, they did a pilot, and uh, I, I go into some of the details of the the, the the curious circumstances that led to it being approved, but it did then get approved as a primetime full series to begin in autumn of 1961. And it ran for four years. And during most of those four years, Rose was the creator and story supervisor, which meant he was now not the person submitting ideas for scripts. He was the person receiving the ideas for scripts and working with an editorial team to have a one-hour script, um, 30 times a year, and it was an extraordinarily taxing job. He wrote some of them, but he was also shaping other people's stories. The Defenders won many Emmys, three years in a row, best drama on television. And at a time when television was beginning to make a move towards sitcoms and predictable Westerns and kind of dumbed down lowbrow entertainment, the Defenders was one that continually tried to push the limits of thoughtful, uh, topical, socially conscious entertainment with a realistic view of the legal profession. Perry Mason, of course, very famous show, but it was about tricks and magic in the courtroom. It was not You didn't really get a sense of what the legal profession was about or what some of the legal issues were. In The Defenders, they brought that out partly because of a man named Jerome Leitner A friend of Rose, who was a lawyer, went on to become dean of the law school in Brooklyn, who was the technical advisor and made sure nothing on that show was not correct from a legal standpoint. So for those four years, 1961 to 1965, uh, Rose was deeply occupied in the Defenders. Of course, he
1: stepped back towards the end. uh, The last year or so, he wasn't as involved, although he still was uh, obviously had had a position of authority with it some Mm -hmm. of the topics i when when i was reading some of the topics that they did shows on i was shocked for example the idea that they could do a a story on abortion Mm -hmm. and have it come out that the person who got the abortion isn't necessarily a bad person especially in the 1960s early 1960s was unbelievable to me
0: yes uh and there was some resistance by three sponsors and they did have to get a different sponsor for that program. And there were a few, I think 13 local affiliates around the country who didn't show that particular show, but CBS stood behind it. And, and remember now, this is 1962. This is 11 years before Roe versus Wade. Uh, Rose was really at the leading edge on many things. In 1964, in the last year, they did a pro, uh, no, next to last year, they did a program on the blacklist. And this was the first time that somebody had used a television show to talk about the injustice of the blacklist that had, of course, pervaded network television in the previous decade. And the wounds were still very raw at that time. He didn't wait another 10 years uh, and write uh, you know, a bittersweet comedy, as, as happened in the mid-70s. He was writing about it when it was still a big deal. Uh, issues of free speech, issues of insanity. A lot about capital punishment, a lot about exposing injustices of capital punishment. Uh, it was an extraordinary program and very much admired by many people. And when CBS made the decision not to continue it after four years, there were many, many people who wrote in. And I, I've gone through Rose's files; he kept many of these letters. Uh, very heartfelt comments by viewers who said, "You know, this was this was the most thoughtful." Um, useful, intelligent television that we've had.
1: And of course, it was an example of a network deciding to change directions because of a new person coming in. A new president comes in and decides to make changes and goes to the situation comedies that another president would later decide to get away from the hayseed comedies that the previous president had brought in. Sure. And of course, the with the goes. blacklist, I go back to the beginning of the book where you talk about Reginald Rose's original work on Studio One, where the producer there was actually hiring blacklisted actors or writers under other assumed names. And that was so interesting, especially when he didn't want to tell anybody. And even though Rose suspected he was kept in the dark about it, at least at first.
0: Yes, um, I, I think you're referring there to Charlie Russell, who was producer of Danger and of You Are There, and try, and uh, did exactly what you described there. Yes, uh, you know. I, so I read quite a bit about the blacklist, and it affected people of different ages differently. If you were born in the 1910s, you would have come of age in the 30s. You would have been a college student uh, concerned about the rise of fascism, the Spanish civil war, and probably done things that would have marked you for a blacklist. But if you were born in the twenties, as Rose was, as Serling was, as Lamette was, you were a little bit younger and you might've gone to college, but you might've been in the military and you served honorably. And then you come out into the teeth of the blacklist and you're looking around and a lot of people you know and like and admire are being harmed but you're young enough that this has not directly affected you, but it poses a big moral question because do you just go along with things or do you try without causing great damage to yourself to use your position to expose this? And that's what Lamette and Rose and others did. They didn't take it on head on, but they found ways to expose these practices and uh, argue for social justice in using the platform that they had.
1: So then after The Defenders, um, Rose largely starts to cut back to basically retiring. I guess you could put it that way, because he pretty much never, he doesn't do much more work, does a few things here and there, but pretty much that's it. And in fact, you used the word recluse towards the end of his life, where he basically didn't want to get involved in anything and he's, other than some of his writing, as we, we, we could talk about related to some of the play. Uh, you know, the, the adaptations for the play of 12 Angry Men um, that Rose decides it's his it's time is done.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a little more complicated than that. He did try several times in the late 60s and even into the 70s to come up with the idea for a new series. Uh, but I think things had moved on. I think that what his his style of writing, his approach, was maybe not in keeping with the times. So you have these wonderful shows that Stephen Bochco and then David E. Kelly do, all these legal shows. They, they went a step way beyond The Defenders, and that kind of fast-paced, witty, intercutting, he was just not going to do that. He did a few things in the 70s, uh, but he could pick and choose his projects. The word recluse it wasn't my word it was a word that um, somebody quoted him as or, or, or described him that way but it's true that for a native new yorker he was by now living in connecticut living quietly taking a few projects but not coming into the city very much and even when he was invited to take part in panel discussions or retrospectives he oftentimes didn't uh, so as i've been researching this I found a a paucity, a lack of Rose on the record, giving interviews the way some others did. You know, the the Television Academy has these fabulous, extensive interviews. You can see six hours of Sidney Lumet talking about everything. You can see E.G. Marshall and David Shaw and all kinds of folks, Bob Markell, that I, I mentioned in the book. Rose never took part in those. So uh, I spoke with his son, who was wonderful and very forthcoming and filled in a lot that I couldn't find. And he said, you know, uh, my father got to a point where he felt his work spoke spoke for itself, and he really didn't need to stand up and and shout anymore. So then the last part of the book, which
1: takes over after um, Rose's death, is what you call the journey of 12 angry men for the last part, which of course is part of the title. Starting first with the background of how it became a stage play, as we've talked a little bit about. But then you get into these two chapters of the play, or the 12 Angry Men for the Law, like you mentioned, and then also Human Behavior. Let's talk about those two chapters a second, because I think this is where you, as a non-film writer, somebody doesn't usually write on film, hold some information that I think adds to the overall story of 12 angry men. And you mentioned it briefly a little while ago, but let's talk about the law and the law profession and 12 angry men.
0: Sure. So the, the general point I would make, and of course, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the book uh, or, or the, or the film, and I've, I've written about it. I don't know of another drama that is, on one hand, as effective a movie and a play, but also is thought of as a serious topic for study by not one, but two very different fields. So it's just extraordinarily rich what's in this drama that the legal profession loves this and talks about it, and and my field about organizational behavior, social psychology as well. What he was able to imbue in this relatively brief drama is quite extraordinary. And I I'm, I make the claim that the three American mid-century dramas of great moral importance are Death of a Salesman, To Kill a Mockingbird, and Twelve Angry Men. But the first two were very successful right from the beginning. Twelve Angry Men, it took a long time, but it now has a reputation, I think, that is very much equal to those. So, in the field of law, well, there are, there are courses that uh, refer to it for rules of evidence and how to think about reasonable doubt and what the proper behavior of a jury is. There have been special issues of uh, law reviews that have looked at many different angles, the legal perspective on 12 Angry Men. And it is a drama that has inspired many people to go into a career of law. Uh, In 2010, a year after she became a Supreme Court Justice, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor was asked by Fordham Law School to pick a film for screening and discussion. The one she picked was 12 Angry Men, which she said when she was a young woman still unsure of a career direction, she saw the movie and it inspired her. Now, as as a prosecutor, she also knew that when you talk to prospective jurors, you better make sure they understand that their job as a juror is not well represented by what you see in 12 angry men. Uh, you are not as a juror supposed to conduct your own investigation. you're not supposed to do your own simulation. you're supposed to respond to what is presented to you but at a symbolic level the legal profession or bring your own, knife in, room. Room. <laughs> bring your you own knife in the room yeah you're not supposed to bring you're not supposed to go to the scene of the crime you're not supposed to you know do your own bring a knife in and, and so forth but at a symbolic level, That you bring together 12 ordinary people without a legal background and expect them to to do their best to deal with one another, to deal with their prejudices, to think about their responsibility. Uh, At a symbolic level, it's extraordinary. And the movie captures that very well. And then you mentioned the human behavior as part of it, which you said
1: is uh, important to your field. Um, but just the way people react to each other, um, especially total strangers. They've been around each other for six days, I think for the trial, but other than that, they know nothing about each other. And yet by the end of the film, you can tell that they learned a lot and have a better understanding, not only
0: of others, but of themselves. Yes, Uh, and uh, Reginald Rose never studied, Psychology or social psychology. He had one year of college and it was a business course, but he understood a lot about human behavior and the way people interact, issues of conformity, issues of affiliation and repulsion and transference. There's a lot of concepts in social psychology that are brilliantly displayed. So much so that uh, I I had a, a colleague of mine who had done his PhD in social psychology at Yale. And he told me in one of his graduate courses, they were asked to watch the movie and then write down as many things as they could see. And that was an exam. And you would almost imagine that the drama had been written to showcase as many concepts from social psychology as possible. Of course, it wasn't written for that, but Rose was so astute and had such a nuanced understanding of how people act individually and in group settings that it lends itself to that. And that's that's where I first encountered this movie and it's what I still uh, teach. And, and I must tell you, it resonates just as well today with people from all around the world. I'm based in Switzerland, I, I teach executive courses. I've had people f- everywhere from the Arab world to Brazil, to Japan, to Switzerland. And uh, the the... Impression it makes is, is truly extraordinary. So at the
1: end of the book, then you say to yourself, I've, I've come to a better understanding, not only of Rose, but the film and the and, and his writing and all of his work and that particular work. How did you enjoy, by the end, dealing with film writing, writing about film?
0: Well, so, Joel, I, I'm not a professional, but my gosh, I've loved movies my whole life. Uh, and I'm a little bit of an amateur historian, and so to go on a, a quest to understand the history of something that brings me into American social history, politics, film—it's been a—it's been a blast. I've really enjoyed it, uh, and that's that's been a lot of fun to see. Also, the different versions of the script from the very first outline to the television, to various versions, to see how the screenplay developed, and then to learn about some of the technical issues between Lemet and Kaufman, that's been wonderful. So to me, it's been an education and uh, it's been a lot of fun.
1: So as I said to you at the beginning, my favorite types of film books are the ones that, ref- that basically revolve around one film, from be- telling the story from beginning to end, and also those that are biographical, particularly about people we may not know much about or we don't know a lot of useful information about them. And this book combined both. So I have to tell you that I I really enjoyed it. It is one of my favorite films, (laughs) along with other people. (laughs) And I have to tell you, this book did a wonderful job of telling the story. And I think you should be proud of the work you did because it it just presented so much great detail. And and I hope... um, you continue to consider writing about film or TV or other things that might fit within your um, profession, because I think business and those kinds of issues are still very important. There's a lot out there that are worth writing about, particularly in media. So I really want to thank
0: you for joining me. Well, thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate it, Joel. Thank you.
1: As I mentioned during the interview, this book is definitely geared to both an academic and popular audience. This is Joel Cherney and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.